deeper, and I just pray that we would, again, uh, respond to what we have heard today, and um, individually, um, that we would hear your voice over our lives, yeah. and um, we wouldn't walk out of here unchanged, but we would be motivated to, to move in your will and to continue to seek your ways, Lord Jesus. We thank you for Aaron and his heart to lead and to just teach us well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, if you want to open your Bibles to Genesis, we are going to look at the story again. Uh, moment of confession, of honesty before you guys. I want to make myself accountable to you. I'm actually tired of Jacob at this point, and so we're going to wrap up the story of Jacob uh, this morning. Uh, interesting character. Uh, these characters in the biblical narrative are not... It's not like the writer decided, oh, this is a hero character, so we'll present him one-dimensionally as a hero. No, uh, we, we, see, we see the whole thing, and uh, we're going we're gonna to catch up with Jacob. But let me frame the story a little bit for you. What I actually want to talk about at the end of this morning's story, uh, which we're going to pick it up, I believe it's in chapter 29, um, <clears throat> I want to talk about takers. Um, it's kind of a word that I made up. Uh, it's probably used, but let me give you my definition of what a taker is. A taker is any person who finds their own sense of value or security by taking things from others. Now, it doesn't have to be done violently. It doesn't even have to be done dishonestly. But I find my value, I find my security by, by pulling it from others, by taking from others to gain that. A taker is a grabber, not a receiver. And here's my second confession this morning. I am deep in my heart of hearts a taker. I have a propensity to find, to, to search for, to look for, to lay a hold of my own sense of value and security by, by requiring it from others, by requiring it from my surroundings, even uh, in uh, hurtful ways at times. And so this morning's teaching is really for my sake, because I know that none of you have that issue. No, this is actually, this is fundamental to the human condition. Uh, we, are, we are weak, fragile, dependent creatures. And it works on our hearts and our psyche in a way that apart from absolute trust in an all-powerful God, it manifests in, in destructive tendencies in our relationships, right? We're trying to grab a hold of a sense of security and value. So you remember last week, Jacob had a dream. God said, hey, I'm going to do all this. And he said, I like your offer. I'd like to negotiate a little bit, right? Also, I'd like to uh, have, you know, a few years to consider your offer and see if you're going to come through on your part before I agree to anything on my end. So Jacob is headed east. He's leaving his home. He's actually fleeing his home. And his brother, from whom he had taken the birthright, taken the blessing, And he comes across a, a group of shepherds. There's a well, and uh, they're waiting to get water. And he says, hey, uh, who are you guys? And they said, oh, we're, uh, we're the shepherds of Laban. He says, Laban? Laban is my uncle. You know Laban? I know Laban. Actually, Jacob didn't know Laban personally, but that's, of course, his mother's brother. 
And so the shepherds say, in fact, there is Laban's daughter. She's coming to water sheep as well. And uh, Rachel shows up and it says that Jacob kissed her, which is a great way to start, right? He kissed her, greeted her, and then he moved the rock off of the well and Jacob watered their sheep. A little trick he had learned from his mom, remember that? And so uh, they realized their cousins. Rachel brought Jacob home to meet her dad, Laban. And Jacob hung out for a month's time. A month went by, and uh, Laban said, Hey, you're going to be here helping out around the house, around the farm, around the ranch. Uh, I'd like to pay you. What can I pay you? And Laban said, I would like you to pay me. I would like your daughter, Rachel, in marriage. And Laban said, great, seven years, seven years of labor. If you work for me for seven years, I'll give you my daughter's hand in marriage. And Jacob said, that's no problem, because he was in love. In fact, the story says that it seemed like but a few days to him, because he was so in love. Seven years went by in a flash. And it came time for the wedding. The festivities commenced. They had a giant party. It was a celebration. And Jacob woke up with the wrong wife. Which would be awkward. Jacob woke up with Leah, his intended wife's older sister, and he went to Laban and said, this is not, this, this is not what, this is not what I worked for, this is not what we agreed on. And Laban said, oh, I'm sorry, did I, you know what's funny? I forgot to mention over the past seven years that it's actually our custom for the oldest daughter to get married first. So um, that's why you're now married to Leah. However, I realize that you still really like Rachel, so we could work that out if you would be willing to, you know, maybe work another seven years. You could marry Rachel. And Jacob agreed. So he actually fulfilled uh, sort of the, the wedding week commitments to his wife Leah. He then immediately married Rachel and then subsequently worked another seven years. And something happened in that household. Uh, something that is going to bear tragic consequences for generations to come. Jacob didn't like Leah. And he just, it wasn't just that he didn't like her. He decided to not like her. Like, I don't love her, so I'm not going to be loving towards her. And he found Rachel to be more attractive. It says physically more attractive, more appealing. And so he gave himself his love to his wife, Rachel, and ignored his wife, Leah. And God noticed that Leah was unloved. And so God opened Leah's womb 
and closed Rachel's womb. Leah had a son named Reuben, and then Sibion, and then Levi. And all three of those sons have names that actually mean something along the lines of, maybe now my husband will finally love me. She had a fourth son named Judah, which means uh, praise God. Rachel is, is tormented by this. She has her husband's love, all of her husband's affection. She knows that she's the desirable wife over her sister, and yet she has not been able to give her husband any kids, and it's eating her alive. I must have all of him, right? She goes to her husband and says, if you don't give me a son, I'm going to die. And Jacob says, I don't make those decisions. I'm not God. I can't magically make that happen for you. I don't know what to tell you. And so Rachel said, fine, I will take matters into my own hand. Again, drawing from the example of those who went before her, she took her maidservant and said to her husband, here, take her. She can have sons and they will be mine. Jacob said, okay. And so Rachel's maidservant, Bilhah, had a son, and Rachel named him Dan. God has vindicated me. And then Bilhah had a second son, Naphtali, and Rachel named him Naphtali, which means I have wrestled over my sister and triumphed. Imagine calling him home for lunch. I have wrestled over my sister and triumphed. It's time for lunch. <laughs> Leah realized she stopped having kids, and she said, well, two can play this game. And she took her maidservant, Zilpah, gave her to Jacob. Zilpah had two sons, Gad and Asher, which means I am happy and other women will consider me fortunate because now I have given my husband six sons. There's this very bizarre story in the middle of all of this. And just in case you think that I'm, I'm reading too much drama into it, where Rachel, Rachel, the one who is loved, approaches Reuben, Leah's oldest son, and asks him uh, for some mandrakes. And Leah says, you have my husband, and you would take my son's mandrakes as well? Leave us alone. And Rachel says, but I really want some mandrakes. And Leah says, I'll tell you what, you can have some of his mandrakes in exchange for a night with your husband. There, it's not just that there's a value disparity in this household. It is an accepted value disparity, right? One woman selling access to her sister. And again, Leah comes to Jacob and says, I have purchased you with mandrakes. And Jacob says, okay. <laughs> Leah had two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. 
I was going to make a joke about how she ran out of good names, but then I realized there's a Zebulun that attends our church, so I'm not going to make that joke. <laughs> Zebulun actually means, again, maybe now my husband will finally acknowledge me as his wife. And then Leah had a daughter, Dinah. Did you catch what I said first service, Chris or Scott? I made a joke about Dinah, meaning hole in the bucket. That's Liza. That's the wrong song. Dinah is working on the railroad, right? Yeah, yeah. She named her daughter Dinah, which means I've been working on the railroad. And then it says that God remembered Rachel. Rachel gave birth to a son, Joseph. So, we're not going to get into this right now, but later on in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about Joseph and his brothers. And you're going to go, man, why are they so jealous of this kid? This is why. So at this point, Jacob has 11 kids, or 11 sons and a daughter. And he goes to Laban and he says, uh, I would like to leave now. I would like to head back home. And Laban says, hey, uh, I've realized something in recent times, and that is that it seems like God has been blessing my estate, my ranch, because of you. And so I'd like you to stay. In fact, I'd be willing to pay you whatever you want to stay and work for me. And Jacob says, okay, I'll tell you what. I will take all of the speckled sheep and all of the off-colored sheep, and you can keep all of the pretty white ones. And that way, going forward, there will never be any disagreement. Because one of the things that comes up in Laban and Jacob's relationship is that Laban has changed his wages ten times. So Jacob does not trust Laban. Laban does not trust Jacob. I will take all the speckled spotted sheep, you keep the white ones. And then it says that, that Jacob had this trick where he would take these branches, he would carve stripes in them, take the bark off, and put it in the water as they were drinking. And I don't totally understand what this is about or what it means. There's some mystery. But the outcome of it was that all of, he would do this with the spotted speckled sheep, and they, like, they started reproducing like rabbits, very healthy speckled sheep. But here's the devious part. He would not do that for the nice white sheep. And what happened is, over a short period of time, all of a sudden, Jacob had this rapidly growing, speckled, healthy flock, and Laban had this pathetic, sickly little group of white sheep. <sighs> Jacob, Jacob. And Laban's sons came to him and said, you, you see what's going on? Your son-in-law is cleaning you out. And by cleaning you out, he's cleaning us out. We've got nothing left. And Laban's other sons, Rachel's brothers, became hostile towards Jacob. And it says that Laban became hostile, became skeptical, became cautious towards Jacob. And it was at this point that God showed up and said, hey, Jacob, you should probably leave now. You might want to get out of here. 
So Jacob went to his wives, Rachel and Leah, and he said, hey, it's not going well with your dad. I'm, I'm thinking of going back home. And the two girls said, dad's the worst. He's dishonest. He sold us to you for labor. He has squandered the benefit of that labor. He has nothing to show for it. What do we have to keep us here? Let's get out of here. And so Jacob, without telling Laban, took his wives, took all of his kids, took all of his animals, and headed for home. And then Laban found out. And so Laban went after him. It took Laban seven days to catch up. But on the sixth night, just when he could see him on the horizon, Jacob and all of his family and his farm, it says on the sixth night that God appeared to Laban and said, Laban, leave Jacob alone. So Laban caught up to Jacob and he says, what have you done to me? Not only have you taken my whole household, you've taken my family, my daughters, my grandkids in the dead of night without telling me and even giving me an opportunity to say goodbye. And I would do something to make you pay for this, but that God appeared to me last night and told me to leave you alone. There's a whole story in there about idols and a saddle and stuff, but you'll have to read it because I don't have time for that right now. It's great. So Jacob and Laban built a monument of rocks as a line of demarcation and made an agreement. Laban, you will not cross this line to come after me, and I will not cross this line to come after you. Truce. Laban leaves, Jacob turns towards home and realizes in that moment, oh right, Esau. I can't go back that way. I guess we're going this way. It says that he sent a servant ahead of him to notify Esau and his household that he was on his way. And the servant came back and said, so Esau knows you're coming. Also, he's not waiting. He's on his way to meet you. Also, he has 400 men with him. <laughs> poor Jacob, you know? I mean, not really, but also poor Jacob. I'm going to make two quick observations, and I'm going to wrap this part of the story up with the third one. The first observation is this. Takers ruin families. Takers find value and security in what they have. They're always on the hunt for more. They serve their own appetites and end up using people accordingly. And when this plays out in the context of a home where the leader of the home is giving love and affection and care based on what satisfies him and ignoring others, creating this like 
this, this internal war within his own household, right? This war for, uh, for, for that care and affection, fostering sort of an every person for themselves mentality. In Jacob's case, in his own family, his wives found their value and security in his affection and their ability to provide kids. And they went after each other over it. Jacob had ruined one family, fled, and had now ruined another, and is running back the opposite direction. The reason this, as far as like the outcomes of what takers, that is, those who selfishly go after whatever, whatever they can get a hold of to establish their own value and security, what's particularly egregious in the home is that God has a specific calling for families that is exactly contrary to that. Husbands, love your wives in what way? As Christ loved the church and gave himself didn't take from them what he needed for his own, to satisfy his own appetites, for his own sense of value and security. He gave himself. There's this discussion in Malachi, which you should go just read all of Malachi 2. It's a fascinating uh, discussion between God and his people. But essentially, he says, God says, you come to the altar, you make your sacrifices, you cry your eyes out and say, Lord, please save us, and I don't do anything. Do you want to know why I don't do anything for you? And then he explains in Malachi 2, because you deal treacherously with the wife of your youth, the one that you made a covenant to care for. And then he goes on and he says, that covenant through which you became one, do you know why God has you covenant together as one husband and wife? Because he's seeking godly offspring. Be careful then about your spirit so that none of you deals treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord. Because the reason I'm ignoring your prayers is because I actually designed the family, the household, as, as, a, as a nurturing sort of refuge for the raising up of godly offspring. And when a leader of a household, a husband or a father, behaves like a taker, it shatters the whole thing. It, it leads to a break in the family. And God says, I hate that. I hate that. Takers ruin families. Number two, takers eventually run out of friends. Jacob has wedged himself between a rock and a hard place. He's not welcome in Haran, and he's not welcome in Canaan. He's burnt bridges there by taking everything for himself. He went to Haran, burnt bridges there by taking for himself, and now he's stuck and he's run out of resources. Proverbs 15, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. You would be better off eating eggplant for dinner and saving your relationships than harming your relationships in order to get more for yourself. It's not going to pay off. 
Proverbs 119, such are the ways of everyone who makes unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessor. This happens all the time. You guys have seen this happen. You guys have watched Christians do this. Business and economic pursuit, income become a wedge in friendship. And for those who are takers and are justifying it internally, looking out for number one, they reassure themselves by saying, well, it's just business. It's just the way the world works. It's just what you have to do. <laughs> and if you want to do that, go for it. You should know that takers eventually run out of friends. So here comes Esau. Jacob is, a, is, is afraid. Jacob thir- or sorry, Genesis 32, Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two companies. He said, well, maybe if Esau comes to one company and attacks it, the company which is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives, and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all of the loving kindness and all of the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. When I crossed the river Jordan the first time, I had only my staff, and now I've come back with two whole companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with their children. And here it is, Jacob says. You said, I will surely prosper. Remember, remember a long time ago when you said those things about how you were going to take care of me? I would like to cash in on this now. So here's Jacob. He actually divides his whole camp into a whole bunch of parties, and he sends them all ahead one at a time in groups. And then he sends his wives ahead and his children ahead of him. And then he's left by himself on this side of the river, afraid to cross. And God shows up. And Jacob did what all takers do when they meet God. He wrestled them. <laughs> then a bizarre detail to the story. Oh, God, you're here. Whew. Come here. Jacob realizes he, that all, everything that he has gained, everything that he has, has taken for himself to provide for himself a sense of value and security, all of it is for naught. He is as vulnerable as he's ever been, as weak as he's ever been. He's got nothing. And now, because of the way that he's lived, he's actually not super confident that God is going to come through in his promises because he realizes, in fact, he just said, I'm unworthy. And because I'm unworthy, I don't think that you're committed or obligated to hold up your end of things. Maybe I could force you to do it. He gets into a wrestling match with God, and it lasts all night long, and God says, dude, I got to go. And Jacob won't let go, so he breaks his, he, he dislocates his hip bone. And so Jacob's clinging onto him, dragging with his dislocated hip. And God says, you got to let go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me, not until you promise to be on my side. 
And the irony of the whole story is that God had said when Jacob was still in the womb, hey, buddy, I'm on your side. I'm going to do all of this. He had reiterated it over and over and over again. And Jacob just couldn't believe it. He could not walk in faith and independence. So he laid a hold of a life for himself. And at the end of that life, with all of its brokenness, he realizes, I have nothing. There is no one to save me. The unfortunate reality is that he missed the opportunity to meet the God who gives freely, the God who makes promises and delivers on those promises because of his own goodness. All of this was, was, was unnecessary. Psalm 73. Who do I have in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. For me, it is, it is the nearness of God that is my good. And so I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. I've made the Lord God my refuge with the expectation that he will come through. God, I know that all of us, in different ways, seek to lay a hold of the things that we need for ourselves. And yet you've called us to something different. You've called us to a, a faith that is firm enough, that is rooted enough to trust, to receive with open hands from you. To live the way that your son lived, a life given away. Lead us into that life. Lead us into your goodness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you guys stand?